Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. You're welcome. Alright, so, as promised and discussed in episode 20, Dark Science, and if you haven't listened to Dark Science, you are really missing out, so what are you doing? Go pause this thing. Go listen to it now. Right now. Alright, anyway, so... If you didn't and you don't want to go listen to it, aside from my hurt feelings, I will explain that we talked briefly about the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, this was the BP spill that was one of the worst in U.S. history. And it was so fascinating reading about the reports and studies and experiments that are still being done in the area. Um, that I said I would do a episode on oil spills. You know, it was only a few weeks ago that Shell had another spill in the Gulf of Mexico, leaving an oil slick on the surface that was, uh, reports were saying it was 13 miles wide, I believe. And, you know, I, I, it's, I might actually, I might have to do an episode about oil spills because there's really, there's so much stuff to know you know, there's the different types of spills, the different types of cleanup, the different types of oil, what's gotten better, what's gotten... I mean, yeah, okay, uh, yes, I actually, re reflecting about this and saying it all out loud, I am definitely going to be doing an episode on oil spills, so, yeah, stay tuned for that. See? I did say it. Anyway, as promised, here is that episode. We are joined today by the one and only Doug Helton, who is the Regional Operations Supervisor for NOAA's Emergency Response Division. So, without further ado, let us learn about oil spills. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literate you are. Hi everybody, welcome back to this week's episode. Today we are joined by Doug Helton, who is the Regional Operations Supervisor for the NOAA Emergency Response Division. Doug looks at the West Coast, Alaska, Hawaii, and the Great Lakes region. Doug, thanks so, so much for coming on the show today. Sure, thanks for having me on. Um, okay, so I, I thought we'd start a little bit from the beginning. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your job entails working for NOAA's Emergency Response Division? Well, NOAA is a scientific support team for the U.S. response system. So if there's an oil spill or chemical spill and there's any technical issues, science issues, we may be called upon to support the operational response. So typically... 
the U.S. Coast Guard or the Environmental Protection Agency will have the lead on the operational cleanup, but they may call us because they need information about ocean currents and weather and how uh, a pollutant might move in the environment or where it might go or what might be the best cleanup options given the scenarios that, that the spill presents. Right. And and so is it not just, um, let's say, oil pollutants from an oil spill? Would it be another substance as well? Or? Well, we work on mostly oil spills. We, we have about 150 to 200 calls a year, and probably three-quarters of those are oil spills. And then the other quarter is a mixture of chemical spills and other events. Sometimes we get called in because there's been a... a a plane crash, for example, and they want to know where to look for the wreckage, and we can use our same models and same tools to predict where other things might float in the ocean. Oh wow! We, we get called fairly often. Yeah, so we get called fairly often for things like uh, marine debris. During the Japan tsunami, we did a lot of modeling of where the different uh, vessels and, and debris fields might be drifting to. Actually, can, can I ask you a question? That there were. You know, a lot of uh, conspiracy theories and, and whatnot, but I never saw anything really empirical uh, about the radiation from the Fukushima uh, meltdown coming on the West Coast. Is, was there any merit to that? There's certainly uh, a concern for that. What, what our prediction was was that there would be very little to trace items. Maybe you could detect it chemically, but it wouldn't be significant in any biological sense or human health uh, sense. A couple reasons for that. One is that the meltdown for the Fukushima uh, facility happened a couple days after the tsunami liberated all that debris. So right. the debris that was coming ashore wasn't necessarily commingled with radioactivity to begin with. And then uh, the, the debris fields took uh, years to transit the ocean, so they weren't very... Uh, a very low risk of, of having any contamination, and none of the sampling that was done found any contamination of any significant means. Good to know. Thank you. You mentioned sampling. What are some of the, the sampling techniques, I guess, uh, that you would use? I mean, uh, would you use something like a, a CPR, the continuous plankton recorder, where you kind of just tow it on a boat and get all the whatever whatever's going on in that area, or are there other techniques uh, that you guys might use? Well, Tsunami specifically, and that was primarily done by another division in my office, our marine debris division. But they they had a protocol that any any debris that was coming, I believe to be from the Japan tsunami, was tested. And there was a protocol that was established between all the West Coast states and uh, British Columbia to do so. So they were using uh, radio radiological detected devices. As far as uh, from a more scientific perspective, there were groups within NOAA and other agencies that were looking at water sampling out in the Pacific Ocean, right. and you know, they could detect uh, very low levels. It was detectable, but not not meaningful in a, in a right. environmental health sense. That makes sense. Would, uh, you know, a lot of what's been in the news when it comes to the marine world uh, has been... Uh, marine plastic and, and debris, and you mentioned the, the debris division. Now, I'm assuming that is its own separate division because marine plastic uh, pollution is not necessarily something that falls under the emergency response. Is that is that 
along the same lines, is that correct? There's a little bit of a overlap. So my program, which is a relative small part of NOLA, we're about 150 people nationwide. There's oh, wow. three operational divisions. One does emergency response to the oil chemical spills. Right. One does long-term assessment and restoration planning, like the damage assessment that was done after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Mm -hmm. And then the third division does uh, research on marine debris. There is a response aspect to that because there are some emergencies that also involve uh, uh, generation of launch of marine debris. For example, you can think of a, a ship that sinks and has lots of containers on board that might have all sorts of household sure. items and goods that have to be tracked and recovered. Mm -hmm. I guess also any any chemicals that might leach off of it as well with for ship. So uh, if you if you had a large container ship incident, for example, all three divisions might have some engagement because there may be an emergency response to oil chemicals on the ship or in the cargo. Right. There might be a long term damage assessment and restoration need, and then and then there may be an issue about all the floating and uh, sinking materials that add to the marine debris in the ocean. Right. Interesting. All right, cool. Uh, so, so let's let's move on a bit. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how did you get into this field? How how did 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 emergency response just kind of call to you, or was there something in particular? <laughs> uh, well, I was in graduate school at the time of the Exxon Valdez and doing research up in Alaska, oh. not not immediately in the uh, Exxon Valdez affected area, but on the periphery down the Alaska Peninsula. Right, and uh, at that time, Exxon Valdez was a huge employer of graduate students and other people, so I got pulled into it. And then I applied for and, and was awarded a Marine Policy Fellowship oh, cool. that took me to D.C. where I worked on marine oil pollution regulations. So after the oil pollution, after the oil pollution Act of 1990, there was all sorts of mandates to develop new protection strategies and new regulations, and I was part of one of the NOAA teams that was working on that. Huh. That's pretty cool. So it was kind of a natural progression, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been working on you know, pretty much any major oil spill in the last 25 years. I've had some involvement with either, either on scene or at least uh, managing things from the office. Wow. Okay. So that that's actually a perfect lead into the next thing, which is... Um, well, I'd like to I'd like to move on to oil spills actually, uh, in general. And so, you you mentioned you've been somewhat involved with any and all oil spills in the last twenty five years. Have they have they changed much? Have there been fewer or less? Um, is technology making a difference in that or? Well, I, I mentioned the uh, Oil Pollution Act of nineteen ninety, and that was passed after the Exxon Valdez that happened in nineteen eighty nine. Right, and that required. Coast Guard and other federal agencies to, to really change the way we respond to oil spills. One of the big things that's changed is the requirement for double-hulled tankers. So in the last 25 years since the uh, requirement of double-hulled tankers, we've really seen a decline in big tanker accidents. So that, that's been a very positive thing. The other thing that we've seen recently is a trend towards uh, spills from other sources. So uh, rail accidents and pipeline accidents have become more significant, especially as some of the western United States oil fields have developed and 
allow that all was transported by train. Right. Yeah, I, I do recall seeing uh, a few of the, either the giant pipelines or a train accident every now and again on the news. Uh, I'm assuming as well that because runoff and whatnot, a terrestrial accident can be associated with the ocean just like any sort of runoff would be? Or is it dealt with in a completely different kind of manner? It's a little bit different, but the the way that we support the Coast Guard wherever they are responding to a spill, the Coast Guard has responsibilities in the Great Lakes and inland rivers. So if you have an incident on the Ohio River or the Mississippi River, even though it's fresh water, it's still within the Coast Guard's jurisdiction right. and they would still have the lead for the response. I see. Now, um, when it comes to actual numbers, I, I think I read somewhere that there's actually quite a lot of oil spills, but most of them are, are fairly small, maybe under a barrel, and it's, and it's the occasional very large one that really kind of breaks the bank. Is that, is that true as well, where you, know, you might have an occasional spill that doesn't really have as big of an impact, but still happens? Yeah, that's definitely the case. We, looking at statistics of spills that are reported annually, somewhere around eight to ten thousand all spills are reported in the U.S. Wow! But most of those are the smaller ones. Those are the ones you know in a marina where someone overflows their their boat when they're fueling it, or those kinds of accidents. The larger ones, the ones that make the the national media, those are more in the uh, you know ten twenty incidents a year that that really are significant uh, large spills. But all of those spills can have impacts uh, at different scales, and all of them have usually have some sort of response. And it may be very small. It may be a few people, or it may be tens of thousands of people that need to right. respond. Um, sorry, I, I just want to jump back for one second. You mentioned that there's more incidences of uh, spills that are not as much, not as co- not coming from tankers as much. Sorry, excuse me. What what do you think is the cause for that? Just more train lines and pipelines being installed and used, or uh, the, for example, the Deepwater Horizon that was capping the the actual the well itself. Is that right? Well, the Deepwater Horizon was an exploration rig that was drilling an active hole for for oil production. Right. So that happens pretty regularly in the Gulf of Mexico. It's less common elsewhere in the country because there's very few areas that have active oil and gas exploration. The rail accidents, I think my guess is that rail accidents happen all the time, but when the train is carrying a load of coal or lumber or or some other commodity, it doesn't really get a lot of attention. But if it's carrying a flammable liquid and that catches on fire, right. it, it catches your attention. So <laughs> what we've seen in the last uh, five to ten years is a dramatic increase in crude by rail, hmm. in part because of the production of all these western oil fields that, that don't have that pipeline infrastructure to transport the products. Right. Now, it, seeing as you're in Canada right now, they, their whole uh, kind of contentious debate over the tar sands uh was it the Alberta tar sands uh, oil? Is that and the pipeline coming right, from there? Those, yeah, the, there's a, the tar sands are another kind of uh, commodity. It's uh, they, they call it tar sands or oil sands, or uh, often they refer to it as dill bit, which is a diluted bitumen. And those are all really heavy oils that um, behave very differently than the Bakken crude oils, which are very light, almost like a gasoline. 
So there, there are two ends of the spectrum. There's lots of different oil types, and the, the two that are in the news right now, one happens to be this very light product that is flammable, and the other is a really uh, weathered and old uh, bitumen, more of a, a degraded oil that they actually mine and then have to mix with other products to get it to flow into a pipeline. I see. The, the, the tar sand ones are the ones that get a lot of attention because they have a, the extraction of the tar sands is a, a much more visible process for right. their, their mining areas to extract the, the layers of this uh, uh, heavy oil and then have a much bigger environmental footprint in the extraction side. And then when it's spilled, there's a lot of questions about how it behaves because it's so heavy that it, it could sink in some situations and, and that makes it much harder to clean up. Right. So actually, that, that's a, that's also another uh, great lead. And can you just explain a little bit about, like you have been doing actually, maybe expand a bit about the different types of oil and what different responses they kind of require? Well, there, there's lots of different kinds of oils. There's There's two main groups there's we talk about crude oils those are oils that are coming out of the ground that have a whole bunch of different properties that's what you think of like an exxon valdez a black oil that is essentially coming from a hole in the ground so that's one class of oils the other class is refined oils those are also shipped in bulk so that's all of the products that are made from that crude oil that could range from gasoline to diesel to heavy bunker fuels, which are almost like a roofing tar. Oh, wow. So the different oil types have, has a big dedication for how you clean it up and how it's going to behave when it's spilled. And there's a, a bunch of parameters that we, we look at, like how viscous is it, um, what's the, um, how soluble is it in water, those kinds of things will affect how to clean up a spill. Right. So actually, on the topic of that, I saw in the news, I think it was last week, there was an update in the in the research from the Deepwater Horizon. And uh, it was a study that was done. They were using uh, drilling mud, um, ways to trace drilling mud, and I think it was barium and olefin. Are those, does those sound right? Yeah, olefins. Yeah. Olefins, yeah. And, uh, and yes. They were able to track that they were from the BP spill and that they had actually sunken down to the seafloor as marine snow. The reason it was such a significant study is because uh, I, I suppose the type of oil that was being drilled for in the Deepwater Horizon was, uh, I guess, was it the lighter kind? So it wasn't really thought of to be heavy enough to float down. Most of the, the oil that would have been spilled would have been oil slick on the surface. That, that's generally the, the thought. So the deep water oil spill was a Louisiana crude. They tend to be lighter and more buoyant. But remember that the release came from a, a wellhead that was leaking a, about a mile deep. So it's starting out on the seafloor. Some fraction of that oil floated, and it took four or five hours for it to, to float to the surface. Think about you know big globules of in a lava lamp, they're going to rise right. slowly in the, in the water. The, some of the smaller droplets and smaller materials were more neutrally buoyant and, and stayed near the, 
the sea the, uh, floor. And then this addition of this drilling mud is another variable. And uh, drilling muds are uh, compounds that are put into the drill hole to balance out the pressures and the formation of the, the, the drilling. Okay. So when they, they pump in these, these heavy liquids that are, they call them muds in the industry, but they're a, a, a formulation of different chemicals that are formulated for their weight to try to balance the pressure in that borehole. Right. Those, those drilling muds are mixed with all sorts of different uh, chemicals, again, mostly for their, their weight and characteristics for drilling. And then during the, so the, those are always present in a drilling operation. During the deep water, they were trying to cap the well, and one of the techniques they tried to do to cap the well was to inject thousands of barrels of this of these muds into the borehole in an attempt to cap it. So they were kind of pouring in this these heavy materials at the same time as the wells spewing out oil, and so that ended up putting a whole lot more of that drilling mud into the environment. I see. Okay, that makes that actually is very helpful thing. It makes a bit more sense. To, I had no idea what drilling mud was, so when I was reading that, I was like, I guess that makes sense, but you know, there was no context. So yeah, and the muds are also when they're drilling, they're they're making cuttings. You know, if you're drilling with a power drill and you're making sawdust, right? So and so the drilling muds are also designed to carry those cuttings away and back back away from the hole, so that just like you blow the dust out of a hole to keep it clean for drilling a piece of wood, they're they're carrying those bits of rock and sand away and recirculating that in a, in a slurry. So the, there's a lot of uh, complicated technologies to, to facilitate that drilling, and, and MUDS is one of the tools. Right. Interesting. So in addition to that, was the... For when specifically about the Deepwater Horizon, the response to that, the reason this is such a significant uh, study, I guess, or is this a significant study? Because now that we've found that there can be these this oil residue on on the the benthic environment on the sea floor for so long, do we know what the impact of that is for the um, marine environment down there? I mean, the whole defense that BP had, as far as I as I'm believe is that there are natural seeps as well so they were saying that it wasn't from them the the oil residue that was on the floor on the seafloor but in fact it was just from natural seeps so how much of that is uh, attributed to natural seeps and how much really could have been from the actual spill well there's there there has been a long-term damage assessment that's been done for the Deepwater horizon and one of the categories they looked at pretty intensively was what's the effect of of the oil and the, the, the broader spill response on the, these deep water habitats. And there certainly have been some significant impacts, especially to some of the deep sea coral environments that are uh, very long lived and sensitive to, to pollutants in general. Right. There's also, there are a lot of natural seeps out in the Gulf of Mexico, and that's partly why people are drilling for oil out there, is that there's a lot of oil in the environment. So, um, I guess there's a lot of new information coming out from the BP spill, a lot of information that's going to be coming out in the next few years that as more research gets published. So we're continuing to see studies like this on a weekly or monthly basis that give us 
a little bit more understanding of what happened and maybe what to expect if another deep water spill like this happens. Right. You know, it's it's um, interesting. I come from more of a fisheries background. Um, my my marine biology background deals more with kind of that side of it. Um, and, you know, we, in, in my master's research, it was looking at how some Atlantic fishery fleets are going further out north into uh, kind of uncharted or, or areas they had not gone before. Is it kind of the same in the oil exploration industry right now where... Uh, now that the technology is better and there's kind of more options, uh, are, are we seeing more deep water wells and offshore wells being built? Well, the, the, the technology is certainly there. The, the industry worldwide right now is, is a, in a recession because of lower oil prices. So some of those, those really more remote, areas difficult to drill they were slated to be developed and i think a lot of those uh, projects are on the back burner right now because the price point isn't there for those those mega projects and in deep water or in remote areas like the chuck gc in alaska the technology's been around but it's expensive right and you need a, a certain price per barrel to make it worth the investment i see actually that brings up another point which is Drilling in the Arctic. So there's, you know, in, in the news quite a lot, Shell's plan to drill in the Arctic and then how they've pulled away recently. And uh, it seems that the Arctic, when it comes to the global conveyor belt and ocean currents and whatnot, uh, it's it's such a sensitive ecosystem, it seems. Uh, and that's where a lot of environmentalists have been a bit uh, kind of freaked out. Is is that the reason why Shell is pulling out of the Arctic? And also, is when it comes to the actual drilling itself, um, when they say it's a matter of uh, when there's a spill, not if there's a spill, is that just sensationalization, or is that actually you know the the odds and the statistics that there will be a spill if they do drill there? Well, the uh, the way I look at it is that um, oil exploration and oil production is the companies have no incentive to spill oil. They try to do a good job, but anytime you move or transport or explore for oil, there's a risk of of spilling it. And the uh, so the uh, exploration plans have all sorts of components to minimize the risk of a spill and then be prepared for those rare events where it does happen. And the the uh, I guess there's always a risk. Some of that risk can be managed, but in some, as you get into more and more extreme environments, whether it's deeper in the Gulf of Mexico or further into the Arctic, the consequences of having an event are much more complicated. You right. know, if you have a spill in uh, onshore, it's relatively easy to deal with. If you have it near shore, it's a little bit harder, but still can be controlled. But once you get so far at the end of your supply chain and the, the end of your response technologies, then even a, a more modest event can become much more complicated to deal with. Right. All right. So we're, we're going to start wrapping this up. And, and I guess, you know, you kind of mentioned that uh, right now the current um, situation is that 
kind of the the oil industry is kind of in a recession because of the low prices. What does the future look like from from your perspective? Well, I think that there's going to be a continued development of uh, oil by rail, and we're going to see more more production and more transportation of of oil by rail. I think that the uh, the good news I said from the Oil Pollution Act that we have double hull tankers. The, those regulations probably over time will apply to other kinds of vessels. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just tankers that spill oil. Freighters and cruise ships all carry large amounts of fuel oil. So the new generation of ship design, I think, is going to take into account uh, protecting those oil tanks better and maybe even shifting to different kinds of fuels. Some some big ships are now converting to LNG as a fuel source. Ooh. So those are, What is LNG, sorry? Uh, liquid natural gas. Oh, okay, okay. So there's like you see trucks driving the city that are on LNG fuels uh, or taxi cabs. Some of these big freighters are now shifting to that, that technology huh. uh, in part because it's um, the fuels are a little cheaper, but also because if it's spilled, you don't have a big oily mess on the water. You have <laughs> a, a evaporating gas that it doesn't necessarily require any cleanup. Right. It, it'll kind of take care of itself so, in that uh, sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, there are some implications of, of that as well. Uh, so I think there's there's definitely some trends coming. Um, and then the Arctic is kind of on the, the back burner for now. I don't think that the companies are back away, but they certainly aren't slowing their, their plans. And uh, my guess is that sometime in the future, they'll be bidding again for some of those offshore leases and, and hopefully um, ha- have the response technologies ready to go and case they start to uh, do exploration up there. Right. Um, interesting. And and would you say that when there's, you know, the Exxon Valdez, you, you mentioned a few times, um, the Deepwater Horizon, you know, we, we have these, uh, these spills that make quite the splash on the mainstream media. Uh, is there, you know, you mentioned legislation or policies that are enacted and introduced after each kind of big spill in response to it? That's generally the case. Deepwater has been more subtle. There hasn't been a big overhaul of how the U.S. responds to oil spills. There's been a few requirements here and there to increase liability limits and to improve some of the um, the, the tools that are used for uh, deepwater oil development. A lot of the oil companies are looking at um, better blowout preventer technologies and those kinds of things. I think on the other side, there's a lot of rail and terrestrial side. There's a lot of looking at rail safety and pipeline safety. So those right. could be coming down the road too, in terms of new requirements and new legislation. Well, we might we might uh, see some sort of uh, hybrid with the Elon Musk's Hyperloop and, and oil transportation. That'd be nuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and there, you know, and the the oil the oil trains certainly get a lot of attention. There was a large incident this. Over the, I think it was Friday afternoon on the Columbia River out in, between Oregon and Washington. So every time one of those oil trains catches on fire, it certainly creates a lot of media interest, and a lot of uh, a lot of the environmental groups uh, can see that happening and are a, a visible symbol of of that type of oil transportation. Right, and 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 to be fair, I do think that when people think of oil spills, their first 
thought is not generally a terrestrial oil spill. And even if it is, I don't think it's met with the same, should we say, horrified response because you don't you don't see you know the oiled up uh, seagulls and and other kind of organisms. I'm sure, I, I obviously that does happen, uh, but I suppose it's not as. I think the symbol of those the, the symbol of those big spills is still the, the ones we saw from Exxon Valdez and then the Santa Barbara spill nearly 40 years ago. You know, it's the, the oiled bird or oiled sea otter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Encapsulated, yeah. And that, that image. That's the image that, yeah, and you see that on, on any major spill. There's going to be, you know, Deepwater Horizon had the oiled dolphins and oiled uh, pelicans. Mm-hmm. So those are the symbols, yeah. Yeah, kind of kind of keystone symbols of uh, oil spills, if there is such a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, great. Well, uh, Doug, listen, I, I've really enjoyed this. Usually I ask my guests uh, one last question before I end interviews, which is, you know, you, you have a platform now, um, being, being on the podcast, to say anything you'd like. Now, you don't have to. It's not a requirement. But if, if you'd like to say anything, you know, it could be about uh, oil spills or, you know, your dog, literally any, anything uh, as you have a platform, uh, feel free to, to take it away. Uh, if not, well, I, I guess the one thing related to spills is, you know, a lot of the, the symbolism of spills is, is like we talked about the uh, heavily oiled bird and struggling in the oil. A lot of the impacts are much more subtle, and they're harder to to detect. And you know, so we we need to look at not just those graphic symbols, but also what's that sort of chronic impact of of a long term spill or cumulative impacts of a lot of small spills in, in an area and not just the big mega spill that has the, the media's attention. I think that's that's a really important point, actually, um, especially because it is so overlooked that people, especially this day and age, they like immediate results. They want to know what's happening immediately. And, and you know, having long-term studies and having it in peer-reviewed journals, it, it really does make it that much more important because we don't know what's going on until we really have looked at it for a long period of time, um, both for recovery and for future, I think. So I, I, I can really get on board with what you said. Well, thanks for having me on, and uh, I'm going to get back to my conference here and learn more about what's happening with oil. All right, sounds good. response stuff in Canada. <laughs> sounds good, Doug. Well, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Okay, thanks. All righty. Bye. Alrighty, everybody, that is our show for today. Thanks so much for tuning in, for your lovely support. As always, don't forget to like and share The Imposter on Facebook, SoundCloud. Check out our WordPress blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Another Fogel. Um, everything else, there are links to the website, and if you feel so inclined, you can always, and this is highly Always sign up to The Imposter Podcast. Subscribe on the iTunes Music Store keyword Imposter Podcast to get all the up-to-date news and episodes. Other than that, we will see you next week. A big shout-out to my friends Mim and David, who are getting married this weekend. Mazatov, and congratulations to both. And that's that. Have a good weekend, everyone. Toodaloo!